Sorry to break up your conversations. It's not always a fun thing, but it's great to have you here. Welcome. The sunny, sunny day, which is beautiful. It's always great to be in this room uh, for sunny Sundays. I remember our first summer in here coming and a visitor just had like their, their sunglasses on in the back row. And I was like, that is epic, like real light in a room. So we love this space. And I just hope everybody's doing so well and uh, continuing on. And I'm just excited about what's happening over the last number of weeks as we focus on hospitality as a church community. Um, We basically started by talking about being this community of bread, uh, these people that eat together as um, a posture of hospitality to those around us on the outside, but as well on the inside. So we started really actually by looking at how our lives shared with other people is the way in which actually evangelism is best enacted. You know, this, this word evangelism can be scary for some of us. Um, I don't know if you're like myself, but I have a bit of like an upbringing in certain styles that scared me um, uh, at times in my own upbringing and realize as I engage Jesus' teaching and mission more that it's actually really simple. This is the thing, this is not rocket science, but that actually eating meals with other people is a way to, and, and kind of displaying our lives, opening our lives in hospitality is a beautiful way. And so we had some video teaching over three weeks when we were in communities and we ate brunch here together, just looking at these stories of how God is at work by simply sharing our lives with others, by doing sometimes what can seem so risky and opening our lives up to our neighbors, our friends, and inviting them in to the way of Jesus. And even these stories of Alpha were just really, really beautiful. Um, Now what we're going to do is we've started this last week. We're going to kind of turn a little inward and look at how important hospitality is just in the rhythm and the life of God's people for each other. So sometimes, you know, I think it's important to start with when we open up our lives as hospitable people and we invite people to a table with us, there's something beautiful that happens in the ebb and flow of our lives with people who don't know God. But there is this also this this focus on making sure we are dialed in on the household or the family of believers. I gave a different interpretation last week. You don't have to agree with it. I said this last week of Matthew 25, where Jesus says that really we posture ourselves towards the least of these, my brothers and sisters. And sometimes we think that's for like the poor and vulnerable outside the walls of the church. And absolutely so, we should be, our hearts should be oriented towards that. But actually, I think Matthew 25 is talking about the the household of God, those who are under the rule and reign of God, because it uses brother and sister language. Whether you agree with that interpretation or not, what you have to agree with is that the New Testament is dialed in and very focused on us caring for each other. I think actually even logistically, it's there, and there's, this is a, a reason why Paul would even say, make sure you take care of the household of faith first, because there's like logistics to it. There's actually, we're going to talk, um, hospitality opens and unleashes something within the community that's more than just like signing up for needs on a clipboard, then there's nothing wrong with that, or signing up to serve on a team at Arcade. We'll do that till we die, right? We'll do those things. But that actually, when we do and focus in on the household of faith, there's people right amongst us that we care for, that actually, as we're going to see in the church in Acts, no need goes unmet. And so it's not that we die to kind of turn off our, our emphasis to our brothers and sisters around us, but we do need to be reminded, especially in a world that is very, has a, a culture that has a very low view of church, especially post-pandemic, that actually the call towards each other in hospitality, really, it actually needs to start here within us and our lives towards each other. Have you ever been left on the outside? 
maybe a social setting or uh, maybe just a, a relationship or something. Uh, a number of weeks ago, um, Heather and I were at a party and, you know, it's this kind of weird moment back towards like real life stuff after a couple years. And we were at a birthday party and it was a wonderful time, but we were kind of like the only ones that really didn't know anybody. There's probably about 15, 20 people there and we were kind of the people on the outside. And we came in and it was kind of that awkward moment, you know, that awkward moment where you come into a room and you get the sense that where you're about to sit beside somebody, they don't want you sitting there. You ever had this, this moment? And so as we came in, I could just tell after a few minutes, this girl is wonderful and nice, but there's either something wrong with us, maybe that's the case, you know, I, I'm open to that, or maybe just maybe like, because she was looking around, you could tell like, there was a sense that she was probably saving a seat for somebody. But it was this awkward moment because we didn't really know anybody outside of maybe a couple couples, and so we're trying to sit down. So eventually, we, at least I stopped fighting it. I said, Heather, come follow me. And we went to the other end of the table where we met some wonderful people, and it was great. But it was just this moment of kind of feeling like, well, I feel like, I kind of feel on the outside here just in the way kind of we were treated and kind of pushed to the outside. Now, I don't think that person necessarily meant it, but these things happen. And it's just, it's a reminder to us, I, and it sounds funny to even relate this idea to Pentecost, but as we move from Easter to Pentecost, it is this season that reminds us that everyone is invited by the king into the kingdom, kingdom, and you may feel unwelcomed in certain places and spaces in your life, the kingdom of God is for everyone. Now, a couple millennia later, we nod our head to that, right? Of course, yes, we know this. The church invites everybody into the way of Jesus, but there were a lot of dynamics in the first century, especially between Jew and Gentile, which we got into a lot in Galatians that were going on. But I just think of what God does through the Spirit. No more insecurity or anxiety that the hospitable God actually welcomes us into his presence. And I lo love, as Josh Jipp, we, we looked at this last week, he says this, those who have experienced divine welcome will seek to share God's hospitality with others. I love that. We are people, if you're a follower of Jesus, that have experienced the welcome of God by God sending himself through this thing called the cross. And now we are these people that then join the Spirit's work in welcoming other people. And so this isn't just like rah, rah, kushkamba, let's be nice people, let's make sure people feel welcome when they come into practice. Obviously, that's, this is what we want. But actually, like, it's not just like, hey, we want a better church culture. It's the fact that God put on display for us, and now we, as his image bearers and his temple, put that on display for the world around us as people come in. You with me out there? You with me, brothers and sisters? Okay, so I was, I was kind of on the, the brink of this. I think we should do this, okay? So there is a lot of talk right now um, just about church, right? There's a lot of deconstruction, if we're just honest. And people have all sorts, you know, there's just a lot of church talk, what the church should be, and I am all for that. There should be rooms and spaces. Now, I do think a lot of times we talk about things that we, at times, at least I'll, I'll speak for myself, I'm unwilling to actually change, and I think that's a problem. That's for another time. But I do think it's important to give us a couple seconds here and I'm just going to throw up one question because I think our voices need to be heard. So we're going to take a couple minutes just as we jump into the Pentecost text. Ne next week is Pentecost Sunday. We'll talk more about that. I goofed last week. I was away for a few weeks. My weeks got all disoriented. Next week is Pentecost Sunday. But just turn to somebody around you just for a minute. What should, we want to hear from you, what should a hospitable church look like?
What should, we've been talking about this as a community being formed and shaped by hospitality and generosity. Take a minute, turn to somebody around you. What should a hospitable church look like? Don't be quiet, it'll be really awkward and then that'll just be <laughs> terrible. And we'll be doing, actually, if you don't talk, we'll be doing counter the very thing we're trying to do, if you know what I'm saying. So take a minute. What should a hospitable church look like? All right. So if you want to... Um, if you want to turn with me, Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be. I'm going to, I'm going to cultivate, till the ground a little for this week. Then next week, the plan is we're going to be in practice communities. I'll talk about that at the end. And we have um, a guy sharing kind of video. His name's Chris Weinard. Weinard? His name's Chris Weinard, I think. That's how you say it. He's a South African guy. He's going to talk a little bit about what the church looks like um, around uh, eating and drinking, an important thing. I'm really trying to actually nail down an interview with him because he's part of a church in Costa Mesa, California that um, does church around the table very, very well in community. But this is a response. We just need to remind ourselves every year at the time and season of Pentecost that this is a response to the Spirit. So if you know, I'm going to not take a ton of time retelling the story. You can read it in Acts 1 and 2. A group of disciples are told to go and to wait on the presence of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit was going to be poured out. This, this longing from Joel, the Old Testament prophet, that the, sport would be, the Spirit would be poured out on all people, sons and daughters, that they would have dreams, that they would prophesy. And so they do that. They go to Jerusalem and at the season of Pentecost. So Pentecost is not as much a denomination as it was a, a festival 50 days after Passover that the Jewish people would celebrate over and over and over. And I know now there's movements. We're part of this as well. Pentecostal kind of denomination. But at its heart, Pentecost was really a festival. And that's when the Spirit comes on the church. Peter gets up. People on the streets think they're drunk. Peter's like, ah, it's nine in the morning. I'm like, maybe in our city this could work. But like, he's like, guys, it's nine in the morning. This, uh, this is not what you think it is, though there was probably, I'm sure, lots of eating and drinking at these festivals. Peter gets up, proclaims the gospel. And then if you look in verse 37, he says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And remember, these are Jewish people descended on Jerusalem for this festival. And so these are very religious people. And all of a sudden, they're hearing this news of a Messiah and King that would be absolutely counter, though they had a foundation of Yahweh as God, was very counter to what they were expecting. A Messiah comes and dies and raises from the dead. So Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so this is the changing of epochs now. It's the, the age of the Holy Spirit where those who are under the rule and reign of Jesus, are now given the Spirit. Peter says, this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And again, the crowds are there for Pentecost and they're just responding to the gospel. So we get this like, picture of what's happening and what's unfolding, but Luke, Dr. Luke, who writes the book of Acts, does not let us off the hook. It's not just, yo, like here's a really great experience and moment for other people. And we know this because the turn of chapter 2 invites us into imagining what it was like as the Spirit was poured out. It's funny, it wasn't like for TV ministry 
or really good church services with like goosebumps, you know, you get goosebumps, or really long altar calls, right? You actually get a picture of what Pentecost produces, verse 42. I know you know this for some of you, but I think it's important to remind ourselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or instruction and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and not just praising God, but this activity, this openness brought on enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so we get a picture here of like Pentecost actually produces something. The Spirit does something. And it's a deep devotion. I think actually there's a number of things here, but really three things when we think about how it ties into hospitality for the church. As the Spirit moved through Easter and the resurrection of Jesus and into Pentecost, They were devoted to table fellowship. We hear it. They ate together regularly. That fellowship koinonia, but we know that this type of fellowship was around the table. They were devoted to that. They were devoted to teaching and the apostles' instruction. And you got to remember, there's no Christian bookstore. There's no podcast, right? Like, there is no really... Outside of the Old Testament, which Jesus is kind of giving now his antithesis, giving a a clearer vision of what the Old Testament would lead to, they really had no foundation of what life in the kingdom of God was going to be like. And so you just can imagine how important instruction in these early churches and communities were. And they were devoted to prayer. Or the prayers, actually, is the language in the Greek that I'm convinced that the early church had scripted prayers that they would read together. And I'm all for free-flowing prayer and, you know, that type of kind of evangelical prayer. I'm all for that. But there is something beautiful about being rooted in uh, the rhythms of daily prayer and the daily office. And I think the church practiced this. And so... You know, we idealize and idolize sometimes the early church. Sometimes when people say we need to be more like the early church, they don't know what they're saying because just read about the early church. It is a gong show, so much so that literally Paul had to write letters to all, and many of them, all he had to do was like correct them about all sorts of things. So don't idealize or idolize that. But I think at the heart of the the movement of hospitality that's happening in the early movement, I just think this is a beautiful vision that can be reclaimed in the church. Table fellowship, when we get together for table fellowship, we're, we're leaning into instruction and teaching from the scriptures, and we pray, right? Pray together. And that means, like, actually praying. I know for myself, I've, I've been telling you guys, I engage so much content in my own mind and brain around pr- prayer. Sometimes I just actually need to do what I'm leaning into. And so... You know, this is actually ties into where we've been. One of the ways we've reimagined what it means to be a hospitable community with the church in community with brothers and sisters is embodying these three things. I think it's not rocket science. I actually think this is what our world is longing for, a church that eats together. Um, Actually, what you get in Corinth is you get a church that modeled the Roman symposium. They would eat together. They would recline and chill out after the meal, and they would actually have a symposium, but in the name of Jesus. So they would come around instruction and teaching, and they would talk about the way of Jesus, and then they would pray. How, could, it be, could it be as simple as that in discipleship 
and taking kind of the New Testament model. And so we've really pushed towards, could we be a community? Table fellowship, eating together, um, this instruction, being kind of led by themes together, and then praying together in those communities. Now, it's not perfect. It's actually hard. That's harder work sometimes than inviting people to like maybe a bigger building, but this is what we see early on. You want to be like the early church? This is, brothers and sisters, the way they rolled. Pentecost drew on a type of hospitality that the Roman world had never seen. I've been engaging the work of Rodney Stark and a guy named Tom Holland. No, not the Spider-Man guy, another guy. Um, and just, they, they, they go back, actually, to the first centuries and why the church would evolve into what it is. And it's just this radical, ordinary hospitality that people would lean into in opening their lives together. One historian, his name is Alan Kreider, and he's an Anabaptist guy. He's really influenced my life in, in a number of ways and just thinking about the church. And he talks about how the church really was a, a community of habit, habitus, the community of habit together. And I just want to highlight just a few things that he brings up around here are some of the things that the church did early on you want to be like the early church? You want to respond the way the church did to Pentecost early on? These are some of the things they did. They met uh, frequently. I think there's some slides there. Yeah, they met frequently. So the Christian community is, in that first century context, was the believer's primary community. So people would come from all over their family of origins, their business, even the deeply rooted family of origin that they were in, especially in the first century and what that meant, and they would come to the church as family. They met frequently. They stood in prayer with their arms raised, Kreider says. Christians are confident people that they are in touch with the powerful God who can defeat the powers that hold people captive. One of the practices or habits they did is they praised and they thanked God together. So God who raised Jesus from the dead is at work. And Christians, the Christian community, can be patient, believing that in him all things are possible, that no action on their part is urgent, that patience actually grows out of praising the God who holds all things securely. Early Christians, the Christian movement, would actually make the sign of the cross. And for some of us, that is crazy Catholic stuff, right? They made, the, they, what? Are you kidding me? But Kreider would say that Christians in their rhythms would recall Christ's saving work and uh, appropriate his uh, protective presence, and they would uh, do this sign as a reminder. Christians early on, Kreider would say, that give, they would give the kiss of peace. And some of you are like, uh-oh, what's, what's going on here? But there was this, and Paul, I mean, I know it's a different culture and moment, but the Christians were bond together in love, and one of the things that was so different than the church is that everybody was equal. It took the Roman society that was stratified in so many ways around whether you were a Roman citizen and how much socioeconomic, where you were on the ladder, and it actually set a, not literally, it set a bomb off metaphorically around status. And so this idea of bonding together. They memorized texts together, primarily, and this is true, this is history, that the Sermon on the Mount was actually something that they would memorize, Isaiah 2, 24, and many other texts that were primary texts for them, they would remember that Christians inwardly appropriate resources that encourage them and point them to new possibilities. They visited the poor, the sick, and the prisoners. Remember, a little different than our moment right now, don't place our kind of legal or jail system on the first century. 
If you went to a Roman prison, you basically had to, had to have somebody in your life keep you alive by feeding you and clothing you. Christians declared that people have dignity and that, that their deeds actually matter. They put money in the collection box by voluntary, voluntarily contributing to the common fund, enacting and embodying the belief that poor people matter and that sharing is actually a fundamental value. They replenished continually the stocks of food and clothing that Christians care for each other. As we learn in the first couple centuries, they feeded needy people. They actually took Jesus' word seriously and cared for their outsiders and cared for those who were their enemies. They discerned carefully together that Christians are actually, as we live in light of this, are people that decide what in culture we're going to say yes to and what we're going to say no to. They were truthful. They didn't swear oaths in the first, you know, in, the, in this response to the way of Jesus in the first couple centuries. They maintained sexual purity. They were faithful to their marriage partners, which would, again, in the Roman moment, was uh, unique. And they do not look lustfully on others. They observed disciplines that limited their inpatient behavior. So early on, as a response, again, especially to the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, Christians do not retaliate. They did not abort or expose infants, and this is not like a political opinion. This is just delivering the mail from the first century Christian community. They did not uh, abort or expose infants. They did not kill, and they did not watch blood sports as a way to say that something is different going on. Christians, you with me? This, I mean, you're like, this is what we're called to people. Yeah, this is, this is our brothers and sisters, right? They were willing to lose out. They were willing to lose out in business and law. They were even willing to live out in verbal arguments. Imagine if the church had this type of posture. Have you been on Twitter recently? Don't, whatever you do, don't do it. And whatever you do, for goodness sake, do not read the comment section. Can I just, let's pray and go home on that one. Can I just, all right? Christians exercise patience. They did not litigate or coerce. Here's an interesting one. Crider would say that Christians, the early community, allowed people to leave the church. That they actually gracefully allowed others. That they, they allowed others and did not compel belief, which is something to me is so... Can I just be honest? I really deep down, and our team I think would say the same, we really, in this moment in history, where there's so many changes, really want you to be here. Now, I know sometimes on a Sunday morning you wake up and you're like, man, I could be doing a million other things. And I get, I get the tension of that. But this is one thing uh, we've been saying over and over. Everything is an invitation. Not going to force people into something. Crazy that this is how the early church enacted. They faced death without fear. They lived risk, with risk, and they experimented. And of course, Crider would say, amongst all of that, that the church exercised hospitality. Basically, Christians are the ones in, we see early on in response to Jesus' teaching that received and they fed visitors, and hospitality was a sign of what God was doing within them. The hospitable God gives his life, and now the hospitable people are the church because it's a response to that. And so, so much could be said. You know, I just hope that we don't forget this season of Pentecost and how important it is in our rhythm to be reminded that you and I have the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead available to us, and it does something within us. Really quickly as we land. Think about it just with me. What 
why this practice is so important, why being hospitable is, is so important. I, I, there's several ways and several things that I think hospitality unleashes, but here's just three really quick as we kind of wind down and we come to the tables in a minute. Here's what hospitality does for us as we open our lives towards each other. First of all, it creates a commitment and a rootedness to one another, right? So, and I've been saying this, hospitality does something different in us than maybe information on the internet or a podcast or YouTube video because it's regular. Hospitality is slow. And here's what hospitality does. It's local. It's not dreaming about some other place or trying to be somewhere else, but it's right in front of us. And so when we open our lives and we're hospitable because of what Jesus has done towards our brothers and sisters, it it spurs on for us a commitment and a rootedness to one another, a way in which we're not thinking about somewhere else, but we're actively and presently in each other's lives here in the moment. This is why the gathered church is so beautiful, and creating a culture of hospitality is beautiful because it says we are local, that we actually, it, it spurs on, like even... Um, through our, our discussion and through our, our commitment and connection towards each other, it spurs on a locality that we're in a place in space together, living out the way of Jesus together. That's what it unleashes. Two, here's a big one. Hospitality unleashes justice and righteousness. If we're honest, the last few years, there has been a lot of hot takes in the hot political and cultural kind of moments that we've experienced, whether it's racial injustice, things we've seen in our own country with our residential schools, all the way through now to gun violence and everything that we're seeing at a, a cultural level in North America. And there is lots of talk about justice and righteousness, but what tends to happen without it being regular and in the church is it's just a one-off hot take online. Or it's a march or a rally, which are very important, I think, to do sometimes and, and engage in that. And not, we've engaged in that. But it's interesting how, what, what happens when the marches and the rallies fade, right? Here we are a couple years later. What do we have? The church. Every single freaking week together, opening our lives up together, doing the work and business of justice and righteousness. This is why I believe in the church, because I'm just taught, guys, I am so tired of hot takes from a distance and no practice. This, the, the type of righteousness and justice, when we talk about racism and racial issues, inequity, injustice, all the things that we are very passionate about, it actually, this type of work happens here because we're together all the time unleashing hospitality with each other, and that opens all sorts of doors into uh, partnering together and envisioning life together and, and really actually tackling some of the inequity that we see. There's lots of talk right now about the poor, and I am very much engaged in that, but I actually don't think a whole lot is going to happen unless we gather together regularly and join our lives together and do it. I'm thankful for the organizations, even in this own building, that are doing good work, but I think there's something powerful about the church that says we're knitting our lives together and we're gonna be hospital, hospitable together. Are you with me? Are you out there? That this, like, the very low moment we're in uh, that views the church in ecclesiology as very low needs to be pushed back on. So, hospitality breeds a commitment and a rootedness to one another. It spurs on justice and righteousness and equity together. And I'll just say, again, 
moments and places when we're together create space where we can chat and talk and, and engage our lives together for ideas and creativity and ways to do that. And there's many, but I'd also say that three, hospitality unleashes making sure no one is in need. So when we're hospitable with one another, we're not just saying, oh, look at those people a couple thousand years later where there was no one in need. Here's the beauty. If we just have church services where people just sit in rows and then go home, a lot of times we miss out on the beauty of when we turn our chairs in towards each other and we're hospitable. It creates space where we actually come to the knowledge of different needs that need to be met. The meal train, baby, come on, somebody. We begin, when we're in the lives of other people, we know, man, there are people that need meals, there's people that sick. If I could sit here and tell story after story of the last number of years, where not by just like what comes from the front on a Sunday morning, but because lives are knit together, all sorts of things. I mean, stories I could tell. I have been the middleman passing envelopes of money to pay for people's rent and their mortgages. I have seen incredible things over the last 10 or 12 years, and it's only happened because people have opened up their lives towards each other. This, brothers and sisters, is what hospitality does, is it unleashes a community of people where just like in Acts, no one is left in need. How do we know? Because we're at a dinner table, or we're in a community together, and it comes up, and it's not to be ashamed or, or looked down on, or it's not even to be hidden. I always say when a church is in community together, man, things just become not unhidden. You know what I'm saying? Like it just comes and it rises to the surface. The needs of the community, what needs to be done, it's very organic in its posture because we're together. We've opened our lives up together. Now, as I watch things unfold online and I just hear people talk, it's so funny, the tension at times between pastors and church leaders and parishioners in just how we posture church. Because even recently, I was around somebody and like the focus was, we've got to put on the biggest and the best thing to get everybody to come. And I'm not necessarily against that, but as I rub shoulders with like actual real people, you can nod your head because you're like a real person, okay? And I, I rub shoulders with people even in our own community and beyond this. It's funny how as people look for a church community or look for a community to embody the way of Jesus, people want friends in community. It's crazy. And all the hard work of church, and I'm not against it, the flickering lights, everything's got to sound perfect and look perfect. The more and more I run into people, at least my age, they just want friends. They want people to do life with. They want to be hospital for the most part. And I know Barna just came up with a, a survey and they're still at the top. There's still this longing, I think, for sermons. And I, I get all that. I understand some of that. But it's fascinating as I'm around people that there's this tension. And so as we embody hospitality, let's be reminded that it's local, it's rooted, it's a, it's a space for justice and righteousness and equity. And it's a space where Guys, it's not just on one person or a couple people up front, but all of us bear then the responsibility that we see in Acts that no one was in need. Are you with me? That's how we do this. We do it together. Now, I don't know in preacher school if they let you do this. I'm going to close with an announcement, okay? I don't know if you're allowed to do that, but I'm pretty unorthodox as it is, so I'm, I don't really care if you know what I'm saying. Um, 
You know, next week, we, next week is two things. Next week is Pentecost Sunday, a massive, massive day in the rhythm of the church calendar. And this year it lands on the moment in time when we're in community together. And I would just encourage us to gather together, to get in a community, to eat together, and to celebrate this day together. I really encourage us. Um, again, I want to be compelling. I don't want to be, you know, forceful, just like the early church. They, you know, they did their thing. But I think, here's the thing. I talk to people a lot of times, and they're enamored a lot of times with the practices and observances of other religions. I hear this a lot, like even from Christians. They're like, they're actually fascinated with some of the observance of uh, other uh, people from other different religious subsets, and they have their own practices. And that's actually, I think there's something good about that. I think it's actually important to lean in if our friends uh, come from different traditions or streams or whatever and, and to listen and to engage that. But it's so funny, a lot of people kind of in our pop Christian world love, like I, had, I heard somebody a little while ago go um, about our Muslim friends, like, man, their devotion to prayer and fixed hour prayer is amazing. And it is, their devotion, to, but... Like, Christians have always been practicing fixed, we've been practicing fixed hour prayer for a long, long time. And my fear is a little, is that, like, we look at other religions' observances and kind of, like, you know, we look at that and that's great, but there's many people, and I don't want to be judgmental, but next week we'll go to the beach or book a tea time on one of the biggest days in our own rhythm. We love to like, look at, wow, look at this group and what the, God, I am so inspired by our own as followers of Jesus, the own type, our own type of rhythms that we have, and somehow we've lost this in our moment. And I would just encourage us in the importance and rhythm of what we're in to remember Pentecost Sunday like we do every year. Certainly we're not Jewish, we're not all descending on Jerusalem, right? We don't need to do that. But what if, we could practice this together as a way to say collectively in community together, come Holy Spirit, do it among us, work among us, eat together, celebrate together. I'm just turned on to the fact that we have our own stuff. We have our own practices and I'm thankful for friends and people who maybe um, celebrate and enter into other things, but I also think we have our, our own practices as the Jesus community that sometimes just get lost in the fact that we're so free and we're evangelical and, you know, each church kind of takes on its own thing. Next week is an important moment, as it should be every single year for us. And so a reminder that hospitality can be put on display even through the things that we observe. And my prayer is, as we eat, we take time together. If you need to get in a community, we'll get you in, in one. Um, it's not perfect, it's hard, it's messy, but it uh, is a great way for us to just be reminded every single month that hospitality is something we practice for each other, to take care of each other, a commitment to be rooted, a commitment to do justice and righteousness together, um, and a commitment that no one is in need. Be alert, be aware of what the Spirit's doing in our midst. You with me? This is the call. This is what Pentecost does. Every year we come to these texts, and it's like, how do you preach it new? This is a response to, to what God is doing in the world. With that said, we're going to come to the tables, and why don't you stand, and Heidi's going to uh, just lead us uh, towards the tables as we close our time together. Go for it.